With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash iHeart. That's lifelock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Oh, hi, hello, nerds. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I am your host, that woman, you know the one, Liv. So, I've always had a complicated relationship with the god Hephaestus, and it's definitely informed the way I tell stories involving him. He's a favorite for a lot of people, which I totally get, but I've always been skewed by the treatment of Aphrodite in relation to Hephaestus, which is unquestionably shit. But there really is so much more to this god than that marriage and the weirdness involved, which is something I've wanted to look deeper into and address for a long time. So when Kyle Lewis Jordan's name was mentioned to me about someone to talk to and he wanted to be on the show, I knew this was my in. And boy, was it. 
So if you listen to last week's conversation episode, you know that it was just part one of two of my conversation with Kyle all about Hephaestus. And just as I hoped, that conversation inspired me to revisit this god and tell you more of his stories. I want to be open up front, though. I'm not going to be going too deep into Hephaestus's impairment or his status as a disabled god, because there really is so much nuance and importance there that I'm not familiar enough to get into. As someone who's not experienced anything in that realm, I don't feel like I'm the right person to talk about it. And my conversation with Kyle, both part one from Friday and part two coming this Friday, does that already in a much more meaningful way. So anything I mentioned today when it comes to that aspect of Hephaestus's character is based on that conversation episode and what I learned and reiterating some of those things, but you should make sure to listen to those. Instead, I just want to talk about Hephaestus as a god in general and all the things he had a hand in or that he did entirely alone. Stories in relation to him as a character, rather than just the ways in which Aphrodite is treated like garbage. Not because she isn't, and not because Hephaestus is perfect or unproblematic, because he isn't those things either. But just because he's more than that. He's more than the god born by Hera despite her husband and then thrown from Mount Olympus because he wasn't 100% the idea of an Olympian perfect being. He's more than the god who married Aphrodite through scheming, even though he may or may not have actually been interested in her. And he's more than the god who trapped her and Ares in a net when he caught them having sex. Though, I mean, he did do those things too, and that's a whole other mess. Still, Hephaestus was the god of fire and the forge and craftsmanship. He was the god who forged Achilles' armor after poor Patroclus died. He was the god who created automatons, basically ancient robots. Hephaestus was really fucking cool, even if his marriage to Aphrodite was seriously fucked up. This is episode 134. You know he basically invented robots? Hephaestus and his forge. The basics of Hephaestus' origins are this. He was born of Hera. Just Hera. He was born of just Hera because Hera was fucking sick of watching her husband succeed in the thing that she was the goddess of, damn it. Hera was the goddess of motherhood, and yet her fucking husband was always able to have all these children all on his own. At least, that's how he saw them, Athena and Dionysus. Both children were, in fact, very much born of their mothers. It's just that Zeus either ate or killed their mothers before they were born, and thus the babies finished their gestation in Zeus. Doesn't mean he birthed them all on his own. Hera, meanwhile, did exactly that. She had Hephaestus all on her own. Now, this is a complex story and definitely isn't the only version, because simultaneously Hephaestus also takes place in Athena's birth story. Zeus ate her mother, Matus, after he learned that the Titan's child would outperform Zeus, and before long found himself with a horrible headache. 
according to these most entertaining versions, Zeus has this horrible splitting headache, kind of like the one I had yesterday after my second dose. <laughs> and he calls upon Hephaestus to help. I wish I had Hephaestus yesterday. Hephaestus is a craftsman, and he gets all his tools and whatnot. He's the perfect god to solve Zeus's problem. So Hephaestus cleaves at Zeus's head and bam, splits it in two and out pops Athena. And then, I don't know, Zeus's head reforms right there. It's messy and a mystery, especially when you take into account the primary reason for Hephaestus's conception was Hera being mad at Zeus for conceiving Athena. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Do not spend too much of your time trying to track down when and why when it comes to Greek mythology. You will never get anywhere and you will get incredibly frustrated because yeah, it doesn't make any fucking sense. Regardless, Hephaestus is, for some reason or another, born of just Hera. Badass in itself. Way to go, Hera. Except when Hephaestus is born, Hera sees that he has a clubbed foot. For this, it seems, she throws him off of Mount Olympus. Or sometimes Zeus does it instead. Whoever does the actual throwing, it is often, if not always, because of his foot. Because, well, the Olympians fucking suck, and I guess sometimes they also feel a bit like partaking in eugenics? Perfect beings, they are not. According to Homer, after Hephaestus was thrown off Olympus, he was raised by Thetis and Eurynome, two oceanids, who took him in and treated him as their own. It was with Thetis and Eurynome that Hephaestus learned his arts and became this super powerful, super important god. Because Hephaestus is one of the most powerful gods, and certainly one of the most important overall, and specifically to the lives of the ancient Greeks. Where would they be without his craftsmanship, without his forge? I mean, do you have any idea how much the ancient Greeks crafted? Pottery, metalwork, weapons, the whole lot of it, all because of Hephaestus. Where would they be without this god? And of course, without the fire. This places him on a similar level to Hestia, who is the goddess of the sacred hearth fire, i.e. the fire in everyone's homes and in temples and the like. These two are linked for their power over fire, and both are tied very closely with the everyday lives of the Greeks. The Greeks needed Hephaestus in a way they definitely did not need Zeus. As I said, today I want to focus mostly on Hephaestus beyond Olympus, beyond the way the Olympians constrained him, and beyond the ultimately very problematic stories of him that are tied to the other Olympians. Let's talk creation. Hephaestus had the power to create life. According to Hesiod, he's the one who forms Pandora out of clay, the other gods give her characteristics and clothing and lots of other things, but Hephaestus created her. But Pandora is human, and let's be honest, we all want to hear about the robots, the automatons. We learned about them very briefly in my episode with Kyle, but they're absolutely worth going into further, and so I had to. There are many references to these beings being created by Hephaestus, these metal, moving, thinking, and talking beings. 
these fucking robots. In the Iliad, Hephaestus is speaking with Thetis as he prepares to create new armor for Achilles. He and Thetis have a close relationship. She's one of the two Oceanids who took him in as a child when he was rejected by his family, who loved him and treated him kindly, who taught him all that he knows. Or at least taught him enough to learn all that he knows. The craftsmanship, the creation, is all Hephaestus. So in the Iliad, as he prepares to make this armor, Homer has this very simple line, as though it isn't one of the coolest things to come out of the ancient world. He says, quote, and in support of their master moved Hephaestus's attendants. These are golden and in appearance like living young women. There is intelligence in their hearts, and there is speech in them and strength, and from the immortal gods they have learned how to do things. These stirred nimbly in support of their master, and moving to where Thetis sat in her shining chair. Hephaestus has created golden beings, human-like creatures made of gold, to help him in his forge. There's mention before this of Hephaestus' so-called limping, and so it's also an interesting note to mention that not only did he create these golden women, and that they are women, I think is extra interesting, but he created these fully functioning golden women to help him in his forge. As I imagine it, they help him with everything, both things relating to his impairment and otherwise. They aid him a bit, but otherwise they also just help him in the forge, something I imagine is pretty tricky and tiring and a lot of work. Who wouldn't want help? The Olympians certainly aren't going to help him, they just want him to make every single thing they could ever want or need. But he not only has these helpers that he's created from scratch, they're women! They're robotic, automaton women helping a man forge weapons. It's pretty fucking cool. According to Philostratus, he, quote, made the gold breathe. Of course, these metallic beings aren't the only automated, lifelike creations of Hephaestus, nor are they remotely the most famous. For Alcanus, the king of the Phaeacians of the Odyssey, he created gold and silver watchdogs, or maybe they were even griffins, that served as guardians, lifelike and imbued with some kind of life force that made them able to protect the palace. For Aetes, this king of Colchis and father to Medea, son of Helios, he created bronze bulls. These were enormous creatures that appear to have been full of life, like Hephaestus' helpers in his forge. They're a task for Jason, yoking these enormous bulls with bronze hooves that breathed fire and were explicitly the creations of Hephaestus. The writer Pausanias wrote of an early temple at the Oracle of Delphi, one made entirely of bronze and built by Hephaestus. And of course, Hephaestus made all of the palaces and security systems of Olympus, unbreakable locks and everything the gods could ever want or need. Hephaestus could make anything the Greeks could dream up. Which leads me to Talos. I can never remember what I've already told you about Talos, but I don't think it's enough. Talos is an enormous automaton, a robot, who patrolled Crete and kept the island safe from pirates and anyone else looking to do them harm. 
Some say Talos was a gift of Hephaestus to the king Minos, others that he was a gift from Zeus to Europa after he, you know, left on an island to start a bull-obsessed dynasty far away from her homeland. But in that case, he was probably still made by Hephaestus. All of the good versions of Talos have him built by Hephaestus, because basically, if it was bronze and incredible and technologically advanced, then it was built by Hephaestus. Talos not only patrolled the island of Crete, keeping it safe, but he was big enough and fast enough to patrol the entire island three times every day. He did, however, have one weakness. He had one blood vessel, basically his life source, running through his body and ending in his ankle. There, it was either protected by only a bit of thin skin or by a stud that could be removed. Either way, Talos was eventually taken out by the Argonauts as they sailed away from Colchis and attempted to land on Crete. It may have been Medea who did it or who told one of the heroes how to do it. The most famous heroes to have done away with Talos are the Dioscori, the twins Castor and Polyduces. Still, defeated or not, Talos was an incredible character and one that seems so far beyond even the Greek myths in terms of imagination, of thinking up what could ever be possible, because Hephaestus could make anything. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does the hard parts for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billings, scheduling, and more with a home management team that provides support before, during, and after your stay so you can focus on the relaxing, hosting, and making memories with family and friends. And you can resell on Picasso's Marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. With Picasso, you can stop saying someday and start building family traditions today in a vacation home you own and revisit time after time. 
Visit Picasso.com today to see thousands of luxury vacation home listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O.com. The Hephaestus that appears in the Iliad is a very interesting one. Firstly, he isn't married to Aphrodite, but to a woman named Aglaia, sometimes called Charis, who is one of the charities, and the goddess of beauty, splendor, glory, and adornment. At the same time, the story of his marital problems with Aphrodite are mentioned in the Odyssey, with the story of him trapping her and Ares together. My beloved website, Theo.com, notes that this could be suggesting that he and Aphrodite divorced, and Hephaestus then married Aglaia. Because when he catches Aphrodite and Ares, he explicitly asks Zeus for the marital gifts he paid in order to marry Aphrodite, which is basically like asking for a divorce. It kind of makes sense. But that Hephaestus is happily married to a nice woman who isn't in love with Ares is not the most exciting aspect of him in the Iliad. And neither is the fact that he handcrafts the most incredible, unbreakable, and invincible armor ancient epic had ever seen. Because he does that too. There is a section in the Iliad that's pretty famous because of what Achilles does, but Hephaestus does it too. They both fight a river. A river. The river Scamander, or Xanthus, to be precise. First, Achilles fights the river, because he's Achilles. But he does this out of necessity, because really all he wants to do is reach Hector and avenge the death of poor Patroclus. (sighs) So before long, Hera calls to her son, Hephaestus, and asks him to take over in fighting the river. The implication here, in a natural sense, is this river is flooding and something needs to be done. Practically speaking, it's flooding because it's full of bodies. And the best solution for both of these problems is fire. Hephaestus listens to Hera and he goes to fight the river and he does it with fire. He sends enough fire to engulf the bodies that had overtaken the banks of the river that are causing it to flood and he burns them. He dries out the plain and everything around to prevent the river from continuing to flood. It's an interesting passage because it's simultaneously clear what's happening from a practical human perspective, but also Hephaestus is very clearly fighting this fucking river. Especially in the Iliad, though absolutely elsewhere, Hephaestus really is a badass. Badass and ingenious, because it's in the Iliad where we get an idea of just how many things Hephaestus has made, not just for humans, not just providing them with the skills to make their own things, but the physical things he has made for the gods on Mount Olympus, which is basically everything. In the Iliad, Homer sings of Hephaestus building the palaces of the gods, the most beautiful and technologically advanced buildings in all the Greek world. He sings of Hera's bedroom, built by Hephaestus, which has a secret, hidden lock that no god can open save for her. Homer sings of Zeus's home, built by Hephaestus for the king of the gods. He sings of all the thrones built by Hephaestus for the gods, of the jewelry and weapons and literally everything that is made by human hands, all ultimately made by Hephaestus. It was Hephaestus who made Achilles' armor and Hephaestus who made the urn, where, in the end, Achilles' ashes were mixed with Patroclus' so they could be together 
forever. Sing, clear-voiced muses of Hephaestus famed for inventions. With bright-eyed Athena he taught men glorious gifts throughout the world, men who before used to dwell in caves in the mountains like wild beasts, but now that they have learned crafts through Hephaestus the famed worker, easily they live a peaceful life in their own homes the whole year round. Be gracious, Hephaestus, and grant me success and prosperity. That is the entirety of the Homeric hymn to Hephaestus, which I think says a lot about his importance and his simplicity, in a good way. As in, when it comes to the daily life of the Greeks, they saw him as someone important to them, who gave them unspeakable gifts and all that, but not really a figure of dramatics or trouble, not one for entertainment just practicality. Hephaestus was incredibly important as a god. He was a creator and a builder and basically the reason the Olympians had anything cool or technologically involved. It was all Hephaestus. He was also an example of a person with a physical impairment in the ancient world, a reminder that the Olympians were molded after human beings. They were human in their own ways. And as Kyle Lewis Jordan laid out so brilliantly in our conversation last week, Hephaestus was, in his way, a disabled god. But he was a god disabled by the Olympians themselves. As a craftsman, Hephaestus had found and built ways of doing anything he could possibly need to. He wasn't affected by his impairment. He'd figured it out. He made all the best armor and built all the best structures and invented fucking robots. He could do it all, even though the Olympians didn't make it easy. So while I did want to focus primarily on non-Olympian bits about Hephaestus, I do want to remind you of some of his most famous stories, because they're fascinating when it comes to his ingenuity and ability to create some of the most absolutely wild shit, but also, as Kyle pointed out in our conversation, there are complexities that are often overlooked, and issues that other Olympians likely wouldn't face in the same way that Hephaestus does. First, as we also made clear in that conversation, all of these fascinating things about Hephaestus and all the ways the, the Olympians made life difficult for him or fucked with him do not absolve him of the shit he did. But these things do add some complexity and nuance to some, if not all, of those shitty things. Because for the most part, all of the shitty things that happened in and around Olympus revolved around Hephaestus trying to gain some acceptance among his family and his home, where acceptance was hard to come by. And that's where things get a little bit messy. But as Kyle brought up, the Olympians themselves are often overlooked when it comes to the reasons and issues surrounding Hephaestus' actions. They seem to be trying to keep him down. They are the ones that disable him, that keep him from being as powerful as he is clearly able to be. The problematic stories surrounding Hephaestus all ultimately come down to Olympus and his place there. When you break it down, it's more about him trying to regain some agency and power over his life, he just does it in dark ways. 
Hephaestus's life began with him being outright rejected by his family, literally thrown off a mountain. The story of him returning to Olympus after being thrown off and raised among the Oceanids is a story of revenge and a story of how Aphrodite ended up married to a man she didn't love. Whether Hephaestus ever loved her, too, is very much up for debate. Hephaestus was looking to punish his mother for throwing him off of Mount Olympus, for rejecting him in the way that she did. You know, the focus is on the tossing a kid off a mountain thing, and I mean, that's obviously bad, just objectively bad, but the rejection of your child because he doesn't meet your opinion of what is and is not perfect in your Olympian eyes is a whole other level of fucked up. I think it says something about Hera in that same way that so many of her stories do, this idea of an angry, wronged woman and all this shit she'll do because of it, rather than looking at why she's so angry. That doesn't apply here in the same way as it does to, you know, punishing the women's use assaults, but it still speaks to the general approach to women, specifically Hera, in the people that told these stories. Regardless, Hephaestus is pissed, and I mean rightfully so, and well, he's cunning and he's got some real ingenuity because what he does to punish his mother is gift her with a throne. The gift is, as you might have guessed, a trap. As soon as Hera sits down, the throne snaps into action and locks her onto the seat. She can't move. She can't get up. She definitely can't escape. And this is Hephaestus who's created the throne, so not only can Hera not escape, but none of the Olympians can help her escape either. She is well and truly stuck. Just fucked. In an attempt to have his wife freed, Zeus makes a proposition. Whoever frees Hera gets to marry Aphrodite dark. I know. There are some versions where this is also based in Zeus's desire to keep Aphrodite from fully utilizing her power. If she's married to someone she isn't into and that wasn't her choice, then the goddess of love is inherently less powerful when it comes to, well, the love. No one is able to free Hera and ultimately she's only freed when Hephaestus is convinced by Dionysus that he should be the one to free Hera and thus win Aphrodite's hand even though he was the one who trapped her in the first place. That part is reasonable. He trapped her, he can free her. But what we don't know here is whether or not Hephaestus actually wanted to marry Aphrodite or whether this ultimately put him in the same position as her, married to someone he didn't love. I could certainly see Hephaestus freeing Hera out of kindness, that's a relative term, or just being sick of all the drama, or just because she's clearly learned her lesson. From there, he would end up married to Aphrodite, whether he liked it or not, because such is the will of Zeus. Still, none of this excuses how he handles Hera or his marriage to Aphrodite, though there are ways to see it through Hephaestus' eyes and through the eyes of people back then and what their rights were when it came to marriage. As you might recall, and as I've briefly mentioned already, one of my favorite stories of Hephaestus, Aphrodite, and Ares is the time that Helios spotted Aphrodite and Ares having sex in the home that she shared with Hephaestus on Olympus. Helios told Hephaestus, and Hephaestus fashioned a net of chains that were invisible, so he could, and did, trap Aphrodite and Ares in the act. He shows the other Olympians in an attempt to get some kind of compensation for the fact that his wife is cheating on him, and the other Olympians all laugh. This has been a favorite story of mine, mostly due to the absurdity of it visually, and because I absolutely love Aphrodite and Ares together. I just always have. I think they're the only example of two Olympians actually loving each other in the mythology and mutually. But I'll admit, I also thought it was funny when the Olympians all laughed at Hephaestus. 
I mean, if you just imagine it, it's funny. But at the same time, I'm now able to see it in a different way. Because as Kyle pointed out, would that have happened to any of the other Olympians? If the roles were reversed, if Ares was married to Aphrodite and she was cheating on him with Hephaestus, would the other Olympians laugh at Ares? I mean, probably not. I suppose they do like chaos, so maybe, but I can't see them howling with laughter at the god of war being insulted in that way. But they do laugh when it comes to Hephaestus. And in this moment, again, something that was mentioned in my conversation with Kyle Lewis Jordan and that I never really considered the ramifications of, Hephaestus is not just showing off this infidelity to the gods. He isn't just trying to shame or embarrass Aphrodite and Ares, though that's part of it. He's trying to get his dowry back, trying to get the marital gifts that he paid to Zeus when he married Aphrodite. In essence, he's taking back his power in the relationship, taking back his own agency on Olympus. And as I mentioned earlier, potentially even formally divorcing Aphrodite so that he could marry someone he loved and who loved him, Aglaia. So obviously Hephaestus' solution is gross and weird, but when it comes to the world back then, the rights of the husband, etc., it is a bit more understandable. Still gross and weird, but you can see where it comes from and you can see especially how skewed this act is for Hephaestus rather than anyone else. The character of Hephaestus and how he's treated on Olympus is fascinating and really isn't something I'd considered before or really been able to see, I guess. He really is the most powerful god, generally. And so the Olympians finding every way imaginable to keep him under their thumb makes a lot of sense. They disable him through their own treatment, the way they make his life harder in order to keep him subjugated and beholden to them. That way, he's still there to make everything for them, to do their bidding, but he isn't able to realize just how powerful he actually is beyond them. I mean, if anyone could take on Zeus, objectively, it's Hephaestus. Because without Hephaestus, Zeus wouldn't even have his lightning bolts. And where would he be then? Without Hephaestus, Ares wouldn't have weapons or armor, neither would Athena. Without Hephaestus, the gods wouldn't have anything. Oh, nerds, thank you so much for listening, as always. This episode, I mean, is just kind of a list of all that makes Hephaestus cool, and it's really best enjoyed alongside my conversation with Kyle Lewis Jordan, both the first part that aired last Friday and the second part that will air this coming Friday. I wanted to talk about Hephaestus as a character outside of the shitty things he did to Hera and Aphrodite with this episode, but I also think the god is best understood from the lens that we used in that conversation episode or really just the lens that Kyle uses generally. Because honestly, I learned so much from that conversation and am now able to see Hephaestus in this totally different light to the point where, yes, I wanted to make this episode about, not about the Olympians, but I also think it's important to look at it with this view of how the Olympians treat him and how he is seen. I've always known that I wasn't doing Hephaestus justice. He's just been one of those blind spots for me based entirely in the fact that I've loved Aphrodite for as long as I've loved mythology. 
But on top of looking at him as a fully-fledged character that's complex and nuanced, that maybe has some background to why he behaves that way, or what outside forces, i.e. the Olympians, cause him to behave in certain ways or contribute to his need to behave in certain ways, it's obviously interesting to look at him from the perspective of a god with a physical impairment. His clubfoot is so often translated to him being quote-unquote lame, which is a word that is just so full of horrible connotations and shouldn't ever apply to people, but on top of that, it really suggests things about Hephaestus that aren't there. He was strong and a powerful god and a very important god, and it was often the Olympians that made his life difficult. Does that excuse his behavior? No, of course not. He's messy as fuck when it comes to Hera and Aphrodite. But still, if you look at him as somebody struggling to gain some agency in their life, some acceptance in their world, you get this much more nuanced view. Regardless, obviously you shouldn't set a trap for your significant other to catch them in the act of cheating by encasing them in an invisible net and then bringing all the other Olympians in to witness it. That's not cool. It's very bad and not good. <laughs> but I do think it's so interesting to think, too, like, did Hephaestus ever want to marry Aphrodite? We don't have a lot of indication that he did, just this idea that she was the goddess of love and beauty, and so, so this concept of, like, of course he should have, or of course he should have wanted to. But that means nothing, and it places an obsession on her looks and sexuality that is obviously kind of problematic and deeply unnecessary. And I didn't even get to his relationship with Athena! Ugh! Kyle and I do go over that quite a bit in Friday's conversation episode, so make sure you listen to that. But something that's not often mentioned, too, is that Hephaestus is also a patron god of Athens, and his temple was just below the Acropolis. It's actually the best-preserved temple in Athens, as far as I know. It's gorgeous. But when discussing Athens, it's just always about Athena. I really just wanted to emphasize today all of the things he made, all the things he did that were not problematic, as well as looking at kind of the a bit of a why behind the problematic bits, not excusing them, but why? Like, where did that come from? Especially to do with the fact that, like, every single thing made in that whole world was by him, and he was basically just this incredible wonder of a human, not a human, wonder of an Olympian. And yet, you know, we when we talk specific stories involving him, they're weird and problematic as hell. <laughs> Anyway, at this point, I'm fully rambling, but I do just want to emphasize how much you should listen to last week's and this week's conversation episodes, not least of which because next week, again, we talk about Hephaestus' relationship with Athena, which is super interesting, as well as reception of him in Greek myth, i.e. Hephaestus in pop culture, which means we talk about Disney's Hercules and my favorite interpretation of Hephaestus by a mile, Lore Olympus. So check back Friday. It's going to be good. Now we need to go rethink everything I've ever thought or said about Hephaestus. You're all the best. Thanks for listening. I'm Liv, and I love this shit. A lot, if you're wondering. It's a lot. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. 
With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does the hard parts for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billings, scheduling, and more with a home management team that provides support before, during, and after your stay so you can focus on the relaxing, hosting, and making memories with family and friends. And you can resell on Picasso's Marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. With Picasso, you can stop saying someday and start building family traditions today in a vacation home you own and revisit time after time. Visit Picasso.com today to see thousands of luxury vacation home listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot com.